following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, when you ask your parents for something that you want, do you ever give them reasons? You know what I'm talking about. Here are a few examples. Mommy and Daddy, please give me food because I am so hungry. Mom and Dad, please get me my own cell phone so that I can call my friends who all have their own phones. Dad, can I get a car for driving to and from work at my new job? Some of these reasons are better than others, aren't they? Well, whatever it is that you're asking for, wouldn't you want to know what the best reasons worth bringing to your parents are? And what about for your prayers? Should we support our petitions before God's throne of grace with reasons? The answer clearly from our text this evening is yes, of course. Christ gives us the reasons to pray, the very best reasons. And wouldn't you want to know what reasons to use before God when you pray? Well, I hope that your answer is again yes, of course, that you're coming here this evening with your ears wide open to Christ's counsel to those who would make supplication to God with reasons, with intelligence, even with arguments, doing what, in the words of one Puritan, uh, taking heaven's gates by storm. In the second half of Matthew 6:13, which is found in most and the most used ancient copies of Matthew's gospel, Jesus teaches us the very best reasons we should bring to God in our prayers as we make requests of God our heavenly Father. Notice the word for here at the beginning of our selected text. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This word introduces the reasons we should use as we, in Paul's words in Romans 15.30, strive together in our prayers to God. Again, as we take heaven's gates by storm. But that's not all that Jesus gives to us in this verse. Jesus also teaches us something very important about prayer. Whenever we pray, whether we be small children or mature Christians in the faith, we must weave into our prayers this golden thread of doxology or praise. As our larger catechism puts it, quote, we are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God. This echoes the opening of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And the conclusion of the prayer is, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory we can say, in heaven and on earth forever. Amen. You see, in both the beginning and the end of the prayer, now we're, we're confessing something about God. We're making a theological confession of faith, a statement of divine truth, which must necessarily lead to worship. This concluding statement, this confession of Christian faith directed toward God as our reasons for prayer, gives us a foundational truth for biblical Christian faith and practice, namely this, that Christian prayer must both praise God and plead His sovereign power and glory, which He employs for His people's good. Christian prayer must 
both praise God and plead His sovereign power and glory, which He graciously employs for His people's good. We'll consider this lesson under two headings this evening, praising God in prayer and pleading with God in prayer. Again, praising God and pleading with God, both of which are done in prayer. In the first place, praising God in prayer, the, the doxology that Christ is, is giving His disciples to use in their prayers, this, this language. In fact, the logic of the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer matches what we know, that any argument we can bring to enforce our petitions must be taken from God Himself who alone is worthy to give weight and reasons to our prayers. We don't have the resources on our own. We're not worthy of the praise which God alone deserves. Thus, when we come to God, we must draw upon this inexhaustible reserve of praise, of glory which He has. We should express His unique worth in our every word, in the beginning of the prayer, in each petition, and certainly here in the conclusion, that's what we see. Namely, that He is praiseworthy for His mighty deeds and for His thrice holy being. So we'll consider praising God in prayer for His mighty deeds and for His thrice holy being, what He has done and who He is. We'll consider his deeds under three categories that actually match kingdom, power, and glory. In the first place, we have his righteous rule. And then in the second place, his divine deliverance. And in the third place, his glorious grace. And we'll go through these somewhat quickly, uh, as is necessary by our time constraints. In the first place, we consider God's righteous rule. That which he does as our king in his kingdom. David uh, blesses God in 1 Chronicles 29, our Old Testament reading tonight, and he gives us a really good model for how to praise God for his righteous rule and administration over his people, the church. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, or rule, or even kingdom, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head, or king, principle, over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Notice how David uses the vocabulary of kingship. He's referring again and again to God's righteous administration of authority, even as he praises God in this prayer. It should remind us of our catechism question uh, of how, how it is that Christ himself, the Redeemer, is our king. Christ as our king, or executes the office of a king, uh, in ruling and defending us, and in uh, conquering all his and our enemies and subduing us to himself. And we see very similar language here. Indeed, God has the victory and the majesty and the power. He alone can cause empires and kingdoms to rise, and he alone determines how they shall fall into the dustbin of history. Well, in the second place, we also praise God for his divine deliverance, which is tied very closely to his work as our king, as the conqueror, as the, the great uh, subduer of all his and our enemies. 
God also has all power to deliver his people through all manner of trials and tribulations. In fact, we see this clearly expressed for us in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, where we read the doxology that's proclaimed before the throne by the martyrs and the angels. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and a number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, praying, praising to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Why is the focus on the Lamb of God? Heavenly worship. Indeed, our worship centers on the Lamb because He is our Passover. He has made atonement for our sins. In Him and in Christ alone, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we find forgiveness of sins before the throne of grace. And so He is worthy to be praised for His divine deliverance, taking us out of the darkness of judgment and condemnation and bringing us into the everlasting light of God's mercy and grace. Brothers and sisters, whenever we pray together, whenever we pray individually and we praise God for His power, we're praising Him for His power to deliver His people, divinely deliver them out of the tragedy and and, and drama even of sin and to bring them into the glorious uh, uh, blessedness and peace of reconciliation with God. In the third place, we consider his glorious grace. And this lines up right with the word glory. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 17. And note the logic here. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant, superabundant, hyperabundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice how Paul, as he's thinking back on his own life, as he's framing the logic of a prayer of thanksgiving to God in Christ, begins with his own wretched condition and the showering of God's superabundant grace upon him which then leads to the praise of God's glorious grandeur as the king who has delivered him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And whenever we're talking about God's gracious deeds, our minds immediately are drawn inescapably to his glorious, thrice holy being. And thus we praise God not only for what he's done 
in exercising the kingdom, of expressing and using his power for our good, of pouring out his grace and glory upon us. But we also praise him for who he is. And that's where we proceed now. We understand his triune being corresponding uh, in some sense here to his kingdom, his power, and his glory. And this is by way of preeminence. It's not that one person is divorced from uh, one of these three categories. In fact, all three are involved in, in all three. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved in the kingdom, the power, and the glory. But by way of preeminence, when we think of kingdom, we think of the Son, Christ the King. When we think of power, we think of the Holy Spirit, who is described as the Spirit of power, who regenerates us, who converts us, who sanctifies us more and more each day. And when we think of the glory... Our minds must go in the first place to the glory of the Father, whom we cannot behold, whose glory will consume us if we were to stand before him as sinful creatures. As the utterly unique Trinity, that is, as the only Trinitarian being that exists, the only being whom we can describe as three in one and one in three, God as Trinity deserves our praise. He's deserving. He's deserving of our praise in a way that no other being is because no other being is like him. We, we are all unitary and in some sense complex, at odds with ourselves in so many ways. But God is both beautifully simple, simply goodness and grace and glory and justice and, and mercy, but also triune, three in one one in three, not radically Unitarian in the way that uh, our Muslim friends and neighbors might imagine him, not at all corresponding to nature in the way that our New Age and, and Hindu neighbors and even our Buddhist neighbors might consider God, the idea of God to be, and certainly not in the perverse kind of monotheism of Judaism and Unitarianism, but rather in the true monotheism of uh, of the triune understanding of God as he is, as Trinity. And so when Christians pray, it should be evident that they are praying to and praising the Holy Trinity, three in one. This helps sustain our prayers as vital, fervent, and interesting. A little bit earlier, Christ told his disciples not to pray as the Gentiles do, with meaningless and vain repetition. Indeed, Trinitarian prayer should never fall into thoughtless chattering or recitation of spiritual tropes. Our prayers should not be boring. You know, my friends, I understand prayer meetings are not always exciting, earth-shattering moments. Frequently we come into prayer and we're tired. We're worn down. It might even be the last thing that we really want to do because it's going to put us to sleep. But Christian prayer whether you use form prayers from the great tradition, whether you use scripture to inform your prayers, whether you're, you're praying extemporaneously out of a heart overflowing with God's grace, Christian prayer should always be enlivening, invigorating, interesting. As you, you pray especially uh, in response to uh, Christ the King's righteous rule and, and his glorious King, and then pray specifically for the power of the Spirit to come and to sanctify you as you make your confession of sin and seek for God's help, for he alone is able to deliver you. And as you pray, especially in praise of the Father's glory poured out in his goodness and grace. You see, as you pray, 
And whether your vocabulary is great or small, you should be discovering and rediscovering, articulating and re-articulating the wonder of our triune God's thrice holy being, that which is incomprehensible to our puny, finite human minds, that which we cannot understand, but yet we can apprehend and consider with wonderment and with praise and with great delight and with interest and intellect. For God, the Trinity, engages our minds. Consider the end of Ephesians chapter 3. This great doxology, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you see how even here, without using the word Trinity, Paul offers a doxology of praise in prayer to the triune God, praising him, God the Father, for the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ Jesus for the sake of the church. And this is how all of our prayer should be characterized. To whom are you praying? When you come before the throne of grace, you are praying to the thrice holy God who has accomplished great things for you and for his people. You are coming to our holy triune God who hears prayers offered in the name of Christ the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Such prayer must praise God. The born-again believer cannot help himself but praise the God to whom he makes his approach in prayer. Just as we saw in 1 Chronicles 29, when all the assembly of Israel fell before God, paying homage to him in prayer and to his king whom he had anointed over them. Do you give thought to how you praise him when you pray? Do you thank him for his deeds done on your behalf? Do you marvel at his mysterious, incomprehensible, and soul-satisfying holy being? I challenge you, in all your praying, this golden thread of doxology must tie together your petitions and your pleadings, to which we will proceed now as we consider our second heading, pleading with God in prayer. What Jesus teaches us um, to do in the, con in the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, not only by way of praising God, but also how it is we are to plead with God in prayer. We are to do two things. We are to appeal to His everlasting possession, that which He has in His possession, namely the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And we are also to appeal to something about Him, His steadfast faithfulness, signified by the word we use at the end of our prayers, Amen. Amen. First, we appeal to his everlasting possession. Again, dividing this up into these three categories of kingdom, power, and glory, considering three different things that God has. He has sovereign authority, he has infinite power, and he has perfect glory. His sovereign authority is that which he possesses as king by right. He has the right of authority. And so we plead with God to hear us because he has all authority to respond in the way that we request him to respond, that is, according to his word in Christ. This is illustrated for us very well by good King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20, where he makes a prayer to God in a desperate circumstance, and he says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not the God of the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? 
Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. So even as he refers to the power of God, really what his focus is on in this prayer is the authority of God. God can do as he wills and as he pleases. And we hear Jehoshaphat pleading with God, Yours is the kingdom. Arise, O Lord, and exercise your sovereign authority for the sake of your people. For yours is the kingdom. And then we move into his infinite power. Where if we go a little bit before um, in 2 Chronicles, six chapters back in 2 Chronicles 14, we hear from another descendant of good King David. This is King Asa. Asa called to the Lord his God, again in a desperate situation, and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name and have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let no man prevail against you. Notice here how Asa arranges his arguments, now focusing on the theme of God's sovereign not his sovereign authority per se, but on his infinite power. God is powerful. He's able to accomplish that which his people need according to his will and his, his revealed design for their good. And so he pleads with God, we are powerless, but you are powerful. Therefore, we pray for you to exercise your power, for you alone can do it. You alone can deliver us out of this desperate situation. When you're faced with all manner of trials and tribulations, as Dr. Piper even referenced this morning, that one thing which we can be sure of uh, we will encounter this year is affliction in some measure, great or small. When you face those afflictions, when you face those desperate circumstances, be reminded God has infinite power at his disposal. And he employs his power for his people's good, just as he does his kingdom, and his glory. And so plead with God, Lord, you are powerful. You are able to deliver me. Do you plead in that way? This takes great mental energy and focus, and I shall say intelligence. Not that you need to be a genius to do it, but you need to be thinking about what you're saying in prayer, not merely repeating wrote lines and rehearsing memorized vocabulary, but rather thinking, how should I appeal to God in this situation? And sometimes, in fact, every time you're faced with seemingly insurmountable difficulties, you plead the power of God. For that is what is modeled for us in Scripture, and that's what Christ commands his disciples to do here in Matthew 6.13. But that's not all. We also plead the perfect glory of God. For yours is the kingdom, for yours is the power, for yours is the glory. And what does this mean? We cannot behold the glory of God. We can't comprehend it. We can only apprehend it. We can catch perhaps a glimpse of it and, and grasp God's glory, but we cannot wrap our arms around it, if you will. Well, the way God reveals his glory to us is indeed his goodness. Exodus 33, Moses, who's interceding on behalf of Israel, meeting with God on the mount, he says, I pray you show me your glory. And God responds and says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. 
And this foundational text for all biblical faith shows us God's glory in his goodness. We behold the glory of God in his self-revelation of goodness to us, of compassion. Daniel understood this very well. While in exile in Persia, Daniel makes confession of sin to God in Daniel chapter 9. And as he does so, he prays these words. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now, so what does Daniel plead? To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. This is what pleading God's glory looks like. Lord, you have perfect glory in your possession. You have an inexhaustible store of compassion, forgiveness to pour out on your people. Lord, cleanse us of our sins. Show us your glory in restoring us once again to right relationship with you as our king in Christ. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Show us your goodness. We plead for yours is the glory. When we plead with God in prayer, we appeal to that which he possesses. For yours is the kingdom. For yours is the power. For yours is the glory. But then we close our prayers with this word, which ties back into his everlasting goodness to us. Amen true. This is a transliterated word taken out of Hebrew. It's not a Greek word, though it's written in Greek in our New Testaments. This word is taken directly out of Hebrew vocabulary describing God's faithfulness, His truth, His uh, veracity, that He will seal all that which He does, and He will truly deliver that which He promises. And so the amen itself is significant, not only because it's commanded here and modeled for us elsewhere, but because it reinforces the appeals we made to God's perfect glory in his goodness. It reinforces the appeals we make to God in praying as he teaches us to pray, signifying that we are praying according to your design in your spirit, and we know that you are true and faithful to bring it to pass. Note that in 1 Corinthians 14, 16, it's modeled for us this way. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? And then in 2 Timothy 4, 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the giving of thanks to a God who's faithful and true. It's the prayers to, to a great rescuer, a deliverer, who's faithful to his promises to his people and to his covenant. It is the amen. It's so easy to say in our prayers, either individually or together, 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As if it's some kind of perfunctory thing. Uh, like we would close a book or a laptop or hit the side button on our phones that makes the screen go dark. It's just the thing we do at the end of an activity. But the point of pleading with God, as I've made again and again tonight, is that there's nothing perfunctory about pleading with God in our prayers. You must be intelligently engaged in the prayer in order to plead with God rightly. There's a mental vigor that is required of us. And with that mental vigor is creativity, intentionality, thoughtfulness as we pray. There's a prayer mindset that's required on one which intelligently fixates or focuses on spiritual realities secured by the faithfulness of God signified in the amen, that of promised glory in Christ above. The enjoyment of full blessedness in the presence of God, not as judge, but as Father and our Father in heaven. Note what it says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, about this mindset we have when we make our approach in prayer. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So I ask you, what might it sound like to bring together praise and pleading in our prayers? Well, I did some searching around this week, and you might be a bit surprised to hear this reference fall from my lips, but one of the Bronte sisters, 19th century novelists and poets, um, gives us a really good model of this. Anne Bronte, who is the youngest and least well-known of the three Bronte sisters, the others being Charlotte and Emily, uh, was a sincere Christian. And like her sisters, she was a rather active writer. She wrote a little poem I found in a book of Christian poetry that I have on my shelf. Uh, she wrote a little poem called A Prayer. And the third and fourth stanzas present us with a fine example of bringing together praise and pleading in prayer. In fact, I reviewed over a dozen of these poems in this book, all of which were called Prayer or Petition. And this was really the only one I found that, that did what... I believe Christ is showing us should be done in terms of bringing together praise and pleading. Listen to her rhyme. I cannot say my faith is strong. I dare not hope my love is great. But strength and love to thee belong. Oh, do not leave me desolate. I know I owe my all to thee. Oh, take the heart I cannot give. Do thou my strength, my Savior be. And make me to thy glory live. In this little poignant rhyme, and Bronte, and much more significantly in Christ's model prayer, the Lord Jesus himself uh, shows us how Christian prayer must both praise God and plead his sovereign power and glory, which he employs for his people's good. As a finite creature coming into contact with your infinite creator, how can you do otherwise than to praise him for his glorious excellencies? And as a sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your whole life, which has been redeemed from judgment, death, and sin, is for this one thing, to give God glory, that is to praise him. And thus, that's, that's what should characterize your prayers. That for which you praise God, His mighty deeds, His wonderful triune being. 
brothers and sisters, these are the very things with which you plead with God to hear you and to answer. What did Anne Bronte say? But strength and love to thee belong. Oh, do not leave me desolate. Do you recognize the argument in such a prayer? In God's possession are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. He is able, and as king, he is willing to judge righteously unto his glory everlasting. He is infinitely generous and good to his children, to all those who have been adopted into his household through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you are in Christ, if you are named with Christ, and if you pray in his name, then do so with all his blessed instruments of praise and pleading. Bring before God's throne the splendid realities of his kingdom, his power, and his glory. As you pray for him to exercise his rule, his deliverances, and his free grace in Christ. That his name would be honored. That his kingdom of glory would be hastened and brought in at the return of Christ and that his will would be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we bless your holy name. Holy, holy, holy you are in heaven above. The highest heavens cannot contain your glory. Indeed, your glory is perfect and infinite. And so we understand your love to be inexhaustible, even your love for sinners such as we are. And we pray, O Lord, that you would exercise your power in righteous rule over us and send forth the spirit of power to set in our hearts not only a great love for you, but a great commitment to your cause in this world. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us, dedicate us, and these modest offerings which we bring this evening to you for the extension of your kingdom, that your rule would be known throughout all the earth, that all men might praise you, even as that glorious picture in Revelation chapter 5 shows us, of all praising you for your glory, your power, your might, and your righteousness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.